how often when you sit in a strategy meeting, do you really hear, okay, we've got to be somewhere else five years from now? Do you really, how often do you really hear, what does that five years from now look like? Or is it, is the, is the assumption that it's like today, but five years better or five years different? That's not how it works. I mean, if you look at. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. It's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and we are bringing to you our next guest on our show, Jonathan Brill. Now, Jonathan is the author of Rogue Waves. He's an expert speaker and advisor on resilient growth. And this is all about decision-making and innovation under uncertainty. Truly fascinating topic. He is an advisor to many companies that are within the Fortune 50 tech scene. He is the managing director of Resilient Growth Partners himself. And he is a high demand thought leader, man. He's a speaker, contributor to TED, and also a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, where I actually found him. Now, this conversation is fascinating. Jonathan's what they refer to is a futurist looking at current trends and overlaying that with opportunities to exploit these trends. So it's like sci-fi meets business. And for anyone out there that is navigating uncertainty with your business in terms of two, three, four, five years and beyond, this conversation is really going to be insightful in terms of how we can start to think about these rogue waves that come into the business landscape and how we can actually leverage them for success. So before we leave you in the capable hands of Jonathan, I am going to read one of our latest reviews from Dan Markovitz from Markovitz Consulting, multiple best-selling author of A Factory of One, The Conclusion Trap and Building the Fit Organization. He says, these guys really know what they're doing. I've been a guest on many podcasts and it's part of my work, but no one's better prepared better organized or more interesting as an interview, an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for that feedback. And also you guys out there leaving us reviews, subscribing to the website. We really, truly appreciate your support. Over and out, we're going to leave you with Jonathan now. Peace. Jonathan, we have made it to the show. I am so glad we're sitting here together. I know there was some confusion on the timing end, it's always a bit weird when we're doing stuff cross seas and cross oceans and cross continents, but I am truly grateful that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today at the Ultra Habits Show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. And look, I I came across you on LinkedIn. I think you were you had a post with Dory Clark and a few other kind of top coaches. Uh, I think Ron Carucci might have been in the picture. I'm not sure. And I kind of started to research more about you. And, you know, I we never met and we never spoke. But, like, I liked the way you came across. Like, you had this real smart, you know, you got an academic feel, but you're a bit quirky. And, you know, you truly haven't disappointed, I have to say. Like, you know, just meeting with you for the last couple of minutes, I, I have to say that you are definitely an interesting cat. <laughs> well, thanks. And the same to you, RJ. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So today we're going to talk about uh, resilient 
growth and decision making in uncertainty, right? Like how do we deal with ambiguity? And I think it's something that's quite relevant with COVID. I think there's always been different iterations of COVID in the business context. I think we just kind of sometimes reinvent crisis, but I think crisis has always been something that organizations have had to deal with. And whether it's a pandemic, a GFC, or, you know, the robots taking over and 50 years, like there's always going to be something, right? So what I'd like to do is, I know you've written a book and, you know, we're talking about rogue waves, right? So can you talk about what rogue waves are in the context of business? That's that's a great question. So you've heard of a black swan event, right? These incalculable risks that kind of fall from the sky out of nowhere. And a lot of uh, executives have come said, well, we didn't know about pandemics. Uh, we weren't ready. Eight of the 10 largest uh, companies in the United States, publicly held companies, failed to identify pandemics as a risk in their SEC risk filings. The reality is you can actually know a lot more about the future than you imagine if you have a process. Because what happens normally isn't a black swan event. It's a rogue wave. It's, it's an unmanageable thing that happens as a result of multiple individually manageable, knowable trends that collide, right? So the issue with COVID, right, isn't that it's a novel respiratory disease. We had two of those in this century, right? We contained them. What, what was going on? There were two things that were going on. One uh, is that we were getting better at containing them, obviously, but they were also happening more, more often. And so when you think about how do you manage a uh, rogue wave, how do you prepare for a rogue wave, how do you prepare for these kinds of risks, and how do you grow in the face of these things? I think it's, it's about looking outside of your organization at the major trends that are happening, what happens when they collide. And in the book and rogue waves, we talk about, uh, we did about $15 million of research to figure out what those major trends are going to be over the next, uh, the next decade. Um, what do they mean for you? What do they mean for your finances? What do they mean for your operations? What do they mean for your external environment? And what do they mean for your strategy? Are you resilient to those things? Because in a world of increasing volatility, and I think, I think we can all agree that we're moving into a world of increasing volatility, the way we think about growth is wrong. Right, the way we think about growth is you have compound growth. Right, Next year, you'll do 6% better than this year, again and again. Right, And that's how you grow. The issue is that when you have high volatility, right, the fact that you have 6% growth on top of that volatility is almost irrelevant in a lot of cases. What you want to do is figure out how you surf the wave, how you surf the wave when it happens, right? Um, when you think about financial downturns over the last uh, 25, 30 years, more billionaires have been created in financial downturns than in upturns. Think about that for a second. Individuals, the companies that were resilient, got the outsized growth. Right? So resilience and growth are inextricably linked. And we take the resilience people, we put them behind the finance people, we lock them up until you know our, our uh, Security and Exchange Commission in the United States or someone else uh, in other countries uh, lets them out to do their annual reporting on risk. 
but actually those people understand exactly where the opportunities are. They understand exactly where the pain points are. And what we need to do is figure out how to take our resilience strategy and how to take our growth strategy and interlink them so that when these changes happen, not only are we more resilient, we're able to flip our kayak faster than our competition and deliver when they can't, but we're actually able to win the game board is discombobulated when the rules are up for grabs, redesign them to our benefit. That's what a company like Zoom did this year, right? They they walked into 2020, they thought they had a pretty good plan, but they certainly weren't planning on 26 times growth. <laughs> no one is. But what's really interesting to me is, you know, yeah, they, they're a unicorn, they have lots of money, they had all that stuff, That's that's all true. Shouldn't Microsoft have captured that market? They, they had the customers, they had installed software, they had the contracts in place. It was a checkbox problem for them. But Zoom captured the growth. So there's something about what they were doing that was different, that had nothing to do with capital, had nothing to do with people, it had no, nothing to do with uh, assets. It had to do with the mindset and it had to do with, with that mindset of resilient growth. Do you think that Zoom, some could say that Zoom was at the right place at the right time? And it wasn't necessarily an explicit strategy? The question isn't whether or not it was an explicit strategy. The question was whether they were able to absorb the opportunity. Slightly different problems. Yes, you want to position yourself for the wave to try and ride it. But at the same time, you want to position yourself to be resilient if you miss the wave and capture the growth when your competitors can't. It's an interesting one because I've been thinking about the Zoom and Microsoft um, landscape. And I get the feeling, and it's a feeling, it's, it's not a fact, that Microsoft is rebounding and they're really looking to, with their obviously Microsoft Teams, start to leverage these technologies. How would you say, how would a firm like Zoom that captured the initial value, if you were advising them, how would you advise them to stay now ahead of the curve in opposition to someone like Microsoft that has the bandwidth and just unimaginable resources? What would Zoom and what should Zoom be doing now? That's a great question. Um, I think they should be resolving some of the problems that come out of COVID. How do you effectively uh, run conferences? How do you uh, help people connect in real ways that aren't transactional, right? The whole problem with Zoom, the whole problem with online is, you know, you've, you've, if you've ever worked remote, you know these games happen, right? You don't get called into the meeting. Right. Well, now we have a world where everybody can not get called into the meeting and not know that it happened. Right. How do you deal with those? How do you deal with those political issues? You know, this, the, the third thing is, you know, you take a look at camera based technology and, and sensor based technology like uh, uh, like uh, the new wearables. You know, what, what is this? You know, it's a galvanometer. It, it measures your heart rate. Uh, it measures blood oxygen level. Right. This is this is a lie detector. Right. You take a look at, at, at a camera, 
you know, it can do things with machine vision that, that do that tell you a lot of those same things. You know, what happens if we take those those small twitches that you miss online and we start creating affordances where uh, people can have those intimate relationships, have those intimate interactions and and really understand the game behind the game, you know, that, that you can't really online. So those would be the places uh, where I would think would be useful uh, from a go to, I guess we're going deep on this, from a go to market standpoint, you know, localization is going to be huge, right? Microsoft, when it plays, it has to play everywhere in the world all at once. You know, Zoom is still small enough that it can roll out and try and control regions. And so that would be uh, an alternate play. Uh, how can they move from just being a web conference tool to being a transaction tool, right? You and I can have this conversation uh, if you're an executive coach or whatever, and, and it's tied to a transaction mechanism. And all of a sudden that gets, that gets easy. Why, why don't they buy um, a clubhouse, you know, like all of those or, or become video clubhouse. Like these are all, there's a pro great product right now called sparkle for, for running conferences. Um, they could do something like that. Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that as um, the world gets dispersed, organizations that can leverage technology better to win clients and make it as real and personable as possible will have a competitive edge. And the platforms that enable to do that will have a competitive edge. So I think that is some really good feedback on that. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about firms moving from simply risk mitigation to then leveraging risk as a competitive advantage. One of the challenges I see there is that risk departments are typically driven by individuals in an ethos that is risk averse. So how do you then start to change the culture within the risk space? Do you team risk people up with growth orientated People like how do you actually start to change the dynamics of how you look at risk to be more of an opportunity assessment versus oh shit like we need to turn away right like how do you do that exactly that that's exactly the, the question it's it's about how do you teach those yeah it's about two things one is how do you teach those skills right in in the the innovation world which is where I come from uh. You know, no one wants to hear about risk management, um, but those are the people who have spent their entire career figuring out exactly where the pain points are. Like, how can you take those tools and bring them into your organization? And it's not really about bringing risk managers, you know, onto the trading floor, you know, or risk managers into the, you know, uh, in, into the sales meeting. It's about how do you bring that suite of tools that helps you really figure out where are the pain points and how do you turn them into opportunities? Um, in the book, we talk about three things, what we call the ABCs of resilient growth. And the way that I think you bring this into organizations, it's, it's kind of a multi-step process. First, you have to create awareness of the type of change that has to happen. This is when I was the, the futurist uh, at HP, this was the first thing we had to do. We, we had to convince people that the world is going to be different tomorrow than today. I know it sounds totally obvious, 
But how often when you sit in a strategy meeting, do you really hear, okay, we've got to be somewhere else five years from now? Do you really, how often do you really hear, what does that five years from now look like? Or is it, is the, is the assumption that it's like today, but five years better or five years different? That's not how it works. I mean, if you look at 2008, right? If COVID had happened in 2008, Right. What would this world have looked like? Right. We wouldn't have had smartphones. Uh, we probably wouldn't have had the vaccine, the, the vaccine technologies that we have in the U.S. that are starting to roll out in Australia. We wouldn't have uh, uh, we certainly wouldn't have the ability to online schedule uh, vaccines, manage the, the distribution in the same way globally. Uh, companies like in, in the U.S., Amazon or uh, Alibaba or. JD, right? They wouldn't have had the logistics infrastructure to pick up the lift in the face of uh, all of these supply chain, all of the supply chain chaos. Um, it would have been a completely different kind of world, right? And and so the question that I would ask isn't like, what is just like, what does the future look like? That's really important. But one of the things I often ask companies, especially companies that are kind of future averse, is like, okay, I'll, I believe you can project the future. I, I believe it's within a range. I, I think that within the next 50 years, RJ, you're, you're likely to die, right? Like, I think, I think it's a good assessment. Um, that's probably not like a range most people are comfortable with for making business decisions. <laughs> um, and a lot of what I do is helping help help them shrink the range, but also help them understand what the range of changes that, that's possible. So a lot of times when people look at me and they say, "Hey, how, how do we think about the future differently?" They say, well, "Like, listen, we we can talk about what what's likely to happen, what's going to happen, what's plausible in the future, but let's first look at the 20th century. In the United States, there were an average of four business shocks a year, 400 over the century." So my question to you in your long-term planning is, let's call it five years. Maybe I, I like 10 because sometimes the future accelerates faster than we think. You know, Zoom was supposed to, you know, digital uh, transformations was supposed to take five years. It turns out it took five weeks, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's like, what does the world look like 10 years from now? And what I, the way I like to do that is pick a century, any, I'm sorry, pick a, a decade, any decade of the 20th century. And let's just walk through those things that happened and ask, is your company ready for that? Are your finances, your operations, your external environment, your strategy, are they ready for that scale of change? Because it's always much larger than we think it's going to be. Even if, even if you look at, at 1900 to 1910, it's much larger than you think it's going to be. And if you believe the world's moving faster today than it ever has, and if you believe it's more volatile than it's been in your lifetime, which all the indicators suggest it's going to be, then um, then you got to at least be ready to survive the 20th century, not the 21st, you know, before you start looking at the 21st. And then we talk about in the book and uh, we talk about the 10 major trends that are shaping the world over the next decade, the social, the economic, and the technological trends that when they collide will create that next rogue wave, whether they're the seed event or whether something else happens and they just kind of overlap it. Just like COVID happened uh, and, and Zoom, like you said, 
was ideally positioned to take advantage of the opportunity. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habit Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year, and we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. Thank you so much. Peace. Yeah, look, I, I'm really feeling that. I mean, I, I drive the sales engine within my organization and we had, you know, you always, you always wake up with a loss versus a win. And, you know, we lost a, a bid that I was certain that we would close. And it came down to our offer was comparable to the other party, but the other party had a physical presence in the head office of the customer. And because of COVID, I was never able to physically fly there. And it really had me thinking, okay, if we're living in a digital age and yes, we can hire people everywhere, but we're really going to have to become stronger in how we leverage technology and COVID. And that initial loss, which could be viewed as a weakness that we had as an organization, is now fast becoming a strength because we're focused on how are we going to leverage what's happening through COVID and this kind of disaggregation um, in terms of how we're dealing with clients to be a strength. So I think organizations need to be thinking and those that are thinking and executing well will dominate their marketplace. Now, you in your your book, you talk about FOES, the acronym FOES. What are these? So, so one of the things that uh, you look at when you think about <laughs> enterprise risk management, which weirdly, just by the way, I spent 25 years working in product innovation, running innovation labs, uh, and, and helping bring 350 products to market. I'm not a risk guy. I just kind of started looking at this stuff and saying, man, these guys are, these people are really good at pricing change, right? Volatility over time. That's, that's what they do. Um, and there's real lessons there. So one of the things they look at uh, are buckets of risk. And so within an organization, there are four major buckets. There are your financial risks. What if you have an asset loss? There are your operational risks, right? What if your supply chain breaks down? There are um, environmental risks. What if your customers disappear on Tuesday? And then there are demand risks. You know, what if, um, or what, what are called strategic risks? And one of those is, is demand, right? What happens if you, Google makes your, your product free? Uh, on Tuesday, right? And and so those four things, financial, operational, external, and strategic change are the four foes of growth. There are two things though. There, one is there are risk factors, right? Where are you not resilient? On the other side, there are opportunity factors. If you're resilient in a place where you know that your industry will have a shock, 
and you can deliver when your competitor can't, you can flip your kayak faster than your competitor, that's a win. But I think even more importantly from an innovation viewpoint, these point to the exact pain points your customer is facing. And I'm not talking about your senior manager customer. I'm not talking about your director level customer. I mean, these are the pain points that the board of directors is terrified of. And if you can figure out how to help your client solve for those factors, get better at those things, those are the types of benefits that no one cares about what they cost, right? You're not competing against the next guy. You're competing against the threat and the fear and the fire and the brimstone of the board of directors. That's how you want to play. You don't want to be like, is my, you know, is, do I have the right color button on my computer? That's, that's a, that's, that's a temporary game. It's a very important point you bring up. I mean, you know, in the sales game, where I live, like you see a lot of sellers targeting the commodity angle, my widget versus your widget. And where what you're talking about is you're focused on your customer strategy and you're dealing with the most innate of human emotions, which is fear. Which is sheer terror. Sheer terror, right? Sheer terror. And all you need to do is read in in the US, I don't know uh, in Australia what the the form is, but we have the the SEC, our Securities and Exchange Commission, requires that all public companies uh, file what they call a 10K. And in that, the second section is the risks. Like, just read that and just figure out, okay, what can I do in there? And then you say, like, listen, your CEO, your board of directors, your, your, your treasurer, your CFO, they say these are your terror points. Here's how I solve them. That, 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 that gets you up about four levels in the organization in your second call. Mm, it, that's, that's powerful. And, and uh, you said something, uh, and I really want you to unpack this. You said, you, you know, there's that saying of focus on what you can, what you can control. And you're like, well, you know, because there's that whole ethos of, you know, deal with the controllables and, and don't worry about the rest. You're really challenging that, right? Like, what would you say to someone that makes that comment in the business context? First off, that that's, that's great. Uh, we've gotten really good at that, first of all. Uh, second, when you take a look at the major causes of sustained decreases in firm value, they aren't financial and, or operational risks. They're external changes and they're strategic failures, right? 75% plus or minus 2% you know, are external and strategic failures. And yet we spend 95% of our time trying to control what we can control. I totally get that. But my question is, like, when you do that, you first of all, you look inwardly. And second, like, I've done this, I've watched this a thousand times, especially in services organizations, like places with super fast cash, cash cycles. Um, they move faster and faster and faster and faster, and they're like, we're, we're getting agile. And that just means that they hit the wall at greater speed. Right. Like maybe it's a good idea to have someone out there looking around saying, hey, is there an iceberg? Where's where are the waves? Where's the change? And I'm not saying that it should be 95 percent of your organization. I'm saying that 95 percent of your organization should be aware of these issues and that you should have an organ within your organization that when 
things are scary when something new happens when when someone sees the the tsunami on the coast that they have the skills the basic executive communication skills to say things in such a way that they get up the organization and that as leaders we need to be good enough at giving direction that people can operate autonomously and innovate autonomously while being while operating in a coordinated way and the reality in both cases today and the majority of the organizations I've worked with is neither of those things are true, right? The C-suite says, do this thing, and then they run away. And then the, the, the SVPs say, do this thing, and then they run away. And uh, VPs and directors. And by the time it gets down to the bottom, like, it's not clear what's the context. Uh, what are the real strategic objectives, right? Not what are you asking me to do, but what are the real strategic objectives? How will we know that we're being successful or failing or that uh, the metrics are no longer relevant, right? We just get KPIs and we're told to run. Um, who do I talk to if my boss isn't there, right? These are basic concepts of, of giving direction, right? Who's in charge if my boss isn't there? How, how do we make a decision faster? What's the most and the least amount of risk? that you want me to take? What are those risk bands? Like I almost never see that when I, when I listen to managers give direction, right? They say, I don't want you to take more risk than this. Like in finance, what's your right level? Um, but very little, rarely do they say, I'll fire you if you take, you know, less than this much risk. And that really, that bottom band, that's really the key to driving innovation in your organization. Otherwise, you're encouraging everybody to take the least amount of risk as opposed to uh, doing it in the way that you want. And then the last piece is, you know, if the entire world goes to heck, what do I do next? If you don't come back for a year, what do I do next? And those are things that, you know, senior managers rarely, rarely do. And it's really just those six uh, principles, right? What's the context? Uh, what's the objective? What are the metrics? Um, what are the risk bands? Who's in charge? And then what, what, what do we do if everything goes bad? Like if you just say those things, your, your people can actually innovate for you. You don't need to watch them because they understand the problem. Most of the time, most people don't understand that they, they understand a problem but they don't understand the problem. It's a really interesting concept um, and something I was discussing with someone earlier today about at what point does focusing on your strengths yield you, there's a diminishing return and you really need to focus on your weaknesses in terms of pulling those levers of, greater optimization, because I believe that you're quite right when you keep focusing on your strengths. And this is in the context of, an, of anything, but we were talking in the context of ultra running. I'm an ultra endurance athlete. And you can play to your strengths for so long. The problem with that is you're quite right. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily deal with the external factors as much that may move and ebb and flow. And for, for, for instance, for me, nutrition, running a hundred kilometer race was always a weakness for me because I always just focused on 
pure output and never really focused on what I was eating, measuring my intake. And I never, I mean, there have been years that I just continued to focus on being a stronger runner. Now that got me so much uptake and I could have continued to focus on that. But when I started to just simply shift the focus on what was considered a weakness, which was my nutrition, just a 20% more focus on that yielded me massive uptake in terms of my output. So you're quite right at certain given point in time, whether it's within you know, the health context or within the business context, having a continual focus on, well, what are our strengths kind of make us myopic, right? And we don't necessarily see the real opportunity for optimization. Mm-hmm. Well, a great example of that, uh, let's I just give you, give you a business example and then talk about a couple of the personal strengths uh, that can help people rapidly get better at seeing the future. Uh, Toyota, I think we can all agree, is one of the great manufacturers in the world. They, they really invented you know, lean manufacturing, you know, they're the biggest, baddest, most efficient heavy manufacturer the world had ever seen. And then when the Fukushima nuclear power plant uh, had had its um, failure, something interesting happened. They had their, their local supply chain got janked up and they weren't able to deliver cars because they were so efficient. They'd gotten so good at it that there was no waste in the system. And so they sat back, they stepped back and they said, okay, well, what are the say 200 parts uh, in our system that if we don't have them make it impossible for us to move forward? Let's get a six month buffer of those parts. You know, let's have someone else buy them and say, you know, we'll buy them at cost, you know, for a point above, you know, whatever the interest rate is or, or whatever. And so for literally almost no money, they had the ability to deliver in 2016 when there was a a natural disaster in Taiwan. They were able to keep pushing cars out because they had enough semiconductors. In the face of COVID, right, all of the car companies, all you hear about is how the car companies are janked up because they can't get semiconductors. Guess who's been doing pretty well? I mean, all of the car companies are having trouble in the face of COVID, but guess who's uh, doing really well comparatively? Toyota. Why? Because of this rethinking of whether their strengths are creating weaknesses. It's honesty, too. It's having the ability to, to look at your own shit and call your shit out, right? And be like, you know what? This is, you know, you had, you know, monumental, and everyone knows the business case studies of the Kodaks and the blockbusters. I mean, this kind of group think this group denial, which in hindsight, everyone can see. But I mean, there are classic examples of that, right? Well, I, I think within that, there's there's actually an interesting backstory. Uh, certainly in the case of, of Blockbuster, uh, the, the CEO at the time actually wanted to build a streaming service. Uh, purportedly, Netflix offered to... Uh, uh, came in and actively uh, tried to sell itself to to Blockbuster, uh, purportedly for fifty million dollars. It was turned down, and it was turned down at the board level, I believe. Uh, Carl Icahn was at the center of that because he believed that the uh, retail store concepts were, you know, like you could calculate the value better. Um, 
that real estate's probably still relatively valuable, but uh, the stores are all dead. You know, it was a, it was one of the the worst the worst business decisions of the twentieth century. But in the case of Kodak, there was an assessment at senior levels uh, that they weren't going to be able to make the turn uh, to digital. It's not that they didn't understand the digital revolution. It was a belief that they weren't going to be able to make the turn, and so they milked the cow for as long as they could. And so that that might be a good assessment, right? That might I don't know I wasn't there, but that might have been a better assessment than uh, than one might imagine. They did pretty well for a pretty long time. Well, Jonathan, really want to thank you for your time. I mean, I it's like um, you've got a a real. Uh, I, I was I always wondered what a futurist was, and and a kind of you know, I've come to understand the term a little bit better. And uh, you've really got this kind of academic, commercial, yet Star Wars vibe about you. I really wish we could have uh, done this interview in person, but, you know, Zoom or, you know, the tech platforms are, are going to have to do, mate. But before we go, we want to thank you for your time. I really do appreciate you coming on. Where can our audience find out more about you and access the book, man. Sure. Uh, the book's available on all the digital channels. Uh, Audible's coming out very soon with the audiobook. Uh, you can find out more about me at jonathanbrill.com. I do speaking and events around the world, uh, and uh, we do advisory as well. Also, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. That's a really great place. We have stuff coming out all the time in places like Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Inc. Uh, over the last month um, and a number of others. So uh, stay in touch. Uh, definitely find me on LinkedIn. Thanks, Jonathan. You have a great late afternoon there. Yeah, in San Francisco. Thank you.